if, if it's not restrained, it's like unrestrained wildfire. You see the reports on the BBC News in places of California or Greece or something where wildfires break out and the fire services just can't control them. James says that our tongues, unrestrained speech, can be just like that. Uh, it can cause the damage that fires do. And we probably all experienced some of that damage ourselves in the ways that our parents spoke to us <clears throat> when we were growing up, or the way that we've spoken to our kids sometimes. Or marriages get ended in a war of words, sadly. Friendships are broken apart through abusive words and speech, and they never get repaired. All of us, to some degree, have felt destroyed or discredited, someone said something unkind about us, someone said something behind our backs, someone said something to discourage us, and someone else's words have had an effect on our souls. And, sadly, the, the reverse is true, our words have probably had a damaging effect on the souls and the hearts and the lives of someone else. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So words have the power to destroy and break down, words have the power to give life. They can either be poison, or they can be fruitful. They, uh, they can be destructive, or they can be life-giving. They have massive potential for good and disastrous potential for evil. Our words can serve to love others or to hate others. They can serve to encourage others or to discourage others. They have the power to build up and to tear down. That's why Paul here in Ephesians tells us that the church needs to be a community where speech and the way that we speak is in, in line with what God intended. That we do, as we'll see in a moment, put off harmful words and put on truthful words, grace-filled words, speaking words of encouragement. Uh, and, and as a church and, and as Christians, we should be marked by the difference in the way that we speak compared to the office, compared to the neighborhood, compared to the school, the university, wherever we find ourselves. The church should be, as Christians, we should be characterized by godly speech, a, a speech that is of a particular kind. Uh, we're called to, to speak redemptively to one another. Uh, and the sweetness and the strength of the gospel, the, the sweetness of God's grace, the, the strength of God's truth should come from our mouths. So every word matters. Uh, every word matters to God. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll read in a second, but uh, from Ephesians chapter 4, but just uh, another text that has weighed kind of heavily on me as I prepare this. It's Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word that we speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. God is going to hold us account to our words. Unfortunately, I don't live with that realization day after day, week after week, and so I'm not very, I can be very uh, lack guarding my tongue. Uh, and we just need to. Hopefully, as we go through this, we'll become aware that we need to guard our tongues and our mouths and what we say. Um, <clears throat> Paul Tripp, in his wonderful book, War of Words, which you can buy on the bookstore, I encourage you to get hold of that because he says everything that I'm about to say, but just much better. And I love Paul Tripp because he's a, he's a great, um, he gets at the heart 
not just through practice. Uh, and in his book, War of Words, he gets at the heart, and he says this, we need to realise how wordy our lives actually are. Um, and if you read statistics, it, he doesn't give this in, in his book, but I read around some statistics, it's estimated that the average number of words that women speak is 20,000 words a day, right? 20,000 words a day that women speak. When it comes to men, we speak, on average, less than 7,000. All right, so, so women speak 20,000 words. That probably doesn't come as any surprise to us who are married. Uh, and we generally, as men, we speak 7,000 words a day. Probably 6,950 of them are not really words, but just grunts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so we just got to be careful. Anyway, Paul Tripp says, we've got to be, we've got to realise how worthy our lives are. Talk seems not so normal, so ordinary, so unimportant, so harmless, yet there are few things that we do that are more important. Words are powerful. Words are important. Words are significant. And it was meant to be that way. God gave us words. When we speak, we must speak with the realisation that God has given our words significance. He's ordained for them to be important. And as we've already said, words are significant in creation and at the fall, they're significant to redemption. He's given our words value. So, we must do all we can to assign our words the importance that Scripture gives and here's the importance that Scripture gives to them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. <clears throat> this is what Paul says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such, only words, that only talk come out of our mouths, that is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. Now, to track just where we're at in, in Ephesians chapter 4, hopefully you know this, but Ephesians 4 comes in the second half of the book, and the second half of the book in chapters 4 to 6 is Paul's applying of the gospel into real life. Whereas in the first three chapters, he's built a case for the power of the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, all that Jesus has done. So from chapter 1, how Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he's adopted us, he's redeemed us, he's saved us, he's made us his own, he's forgiven our sins, uh, he's made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2, we were objects of wrath, he's changed us to objects of mercy, he's made us alive, he's given us work to do, he's destroyed the barriers that existed between Jew and Gentile, and he's broken all the, the other divisions that we put up as human beings between race and age and uh, economic status and educational backgrounds, etc. And he's making one new man, Paul says, from the two. He's making a new community. Uh, and then 
uh, Ephesians 3, he says this new community is then designed by God to display the power, the wisdom, and the wonder of God. And that new community that displays the wisdom and the power and the wonder of God is the church. So then, if we're to display the power and the wonder and the wisdom of God and point people to the salvation in Christ, we've got to live a certain way. Not to earn our salvation and earn our acceptance with God, but because of, and we, we live from our salvation to, uh, to testify to the power and the wonder and the wisdom of God. So not to earn it, we, we live from it and out of it. And so chapters 4 to 6 are this, how we live out of the gospel, how we live out of the gospel, not just out of it, but how we live it out, how it's supposed to be uh, on display. And these, these gospel obligations, if you like, of chapters 4 to 6 are intrinsically tied to the gospel declarations of chapters 1 to 3. You can't separate them out, and it would be wrong just to say, well, we're just going to speak differently, because that's what God calls us to do, without seeing that he's also given us the power to speak differently in life transformation through Jesus Christ. Uh, so we were once dead, but God sought us out and saved us, made us alive, and in that action, that glorious action of the gospel, he's given us new hearts, this is the beginning of chapter 4, you can read all about it. Uh, he's given us new hearts, he's given us new motivations, he's given us new lives, he's given us new desires, and he's given us, uh, he calls us to new ways of speaking. So we're to act out of who we are because we've been made new. Uh, so true followers of Jesus Christ, we've, we've been given new life and new motivations and new minds and new way of living, which includes new ways of Speaking And Paul's very clear here about two things that should characterise our speech when we think about how we talk to one another in the church. There are words that we've got to put off, and there are words that we've got to put on. Words that we've got to put off, and words that we've got to put on. Now, one of the important things to, think, to see is that this isn't Paul just recommending something. It's actually a command. It's a, it's a command in the Scriptures. He wants us to obey him in this area. It's not just hey, this would be a really great idea if you did this because I just think it would bring more peace. He actually commands it of us. It's a gospel obligation based on gospel transformation. <coughs> and so for Christians, Paul says, the type of speech that is unwholesome and corrupting, and by corrupting, it. it it's based on a Greek word which was used to describe food, like fish, that had gone off and was rotting and spoiling. So if you go across, I'm sure, to the chip shop later on and you say, can I see your fish tails and fish heads and skin and, you know, can I take it home with me for a week? You would get the idea of what, what Paul means when he says corrupting. He means have no talk that is rotten and poisonous and spoiled and disgusting. If you wouldn't put it in your mouth to eat it, don't let it come out of your mouth for someone else to feed off. That's the kind of the image that we get here. Uh, that unwholesome and corrupting talk, uh, it, you, you wouldn't eat food that would do you harm, so don't speak words that do others harm. So it's not as simple as just, sometimes people think that this verse can be contained to don't swear, don't speak of, you know, in obscene ways, uh, although certainly that is included, if you just, if you 
carry on with Paul's train of thought here, you get down to uh, chapter 5, verse 3, where he says, you know, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. These are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanks to me. So it's not just refraining from telling the, the rude joke that you heard on the TV. It's not just refraining from swearing like people do in the office, and certainly they are included. It's putting off all bad speech, all corrupting talk, all polluting words, all words that have the power and the potential to bring damage to someone else. So vulgarity is certainly included, but it can include contemptuous words, abusive words, divisive words. I mean, I just sat down and I made a list of the kind of things that this might include, so let me just, I'll read through this list. It's, uh, some of them are a little bit out there, some are more subtle, certainly not an exhaustive list, mostly just suggestive. And if you made up your own list for your own experience, you'd probably add a few more to this. But here's, here's some of the things that uh, I came up with as I thought about my speech over my 40 years of being alive on this planet. Here we go. Here's, here's the, uh, the areas where I have sinned. Uh, speaking negative words about someone else that destroy them. Biting sarcasm. Rude double entendres or euphemisms, cruel criticisms, insults, hurtful words, calling people names, heat of the moment words that were said in uh, for effect or for attention, gossip, slander, lies, spreading of rumours, passing on of critical judgments of others, ranting and raving about with angry words or words uttered just with a, a, an edge to them. <laughs> Boasting about what I've done or what I've got to make others feel insignificant and small. Condescending speech. Self-centered speech. Proud speech. Unbiblical words. Words that contradict the scriptures, that deny the truth. Grumbling. Complaining. Moaning. Talking to the children to score points against my spouse. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. You should have mentioned that one, huh? Yeah. No, that's me. All of these words and more um, are, I think, things that have to do with corrupting talk. They're words that destroy godly relationships and hinder unity. Uh, Brian Chappell, in his commentary on the book of Ephesians, I don't know whether this is in the notes, but it is. He says, Paul's imperative at verse 29 is far broader than we might expect or like. Christians are not allowed to say whatever we desire simply by rationalizing a way that we do not cuss or become coarse. We're not even allowed to fall back upon some category of neutrality in rationalizing what we say, as in, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, it must be okay to say it. The Apostle's standard here is that if it does not build up, and benefit, then it's not worthy to be said. <clears throat> not worthy to be said. I think, wow, my goodness. That's a high standard that God calls us to. A high standard. And who alone could do it on their own? Well, none of us can. The good news is we're not called to do it alone. As we said, this fits into the, the overflowing uh, organization of the book of Ephesians that God has transformed us in Christ, given us new life, and 
therefore he's given us the power through the Holy Spirit, as we heard about this morning, to help us to meet this standard. And when we don't meet the standard, he's gracious to forgive us. But that doesn't mean we get off lightly, like we've got to get out of jail free card in our back pocket. Well, I speak out like this. You know, better to repent later, you know, and just do what I like. Then. That's easier, isn't it? Say what I like and then repent later. No, God calls us to a high standard uh, of our words. <clears throat> a couple of thoughts as well. Just I think this came out yesterday, but something that Bob said, like in, in the generation that we're in right now, there's almost nothing that we say today that isn't blogged or Facebook or Twitter or you know put up on Instagram to accompany a fantastic looking picture. Uh, everybody is posting their thoughts and their inclinations, and we have an impulse to tell the world what we're thinking, even if no one else is listening to us. We just got to get it out there, and we can think that our speech in the digital world isn't constrained by what God says. Because hey, Paul didn't know about Twitter, did he? He didn't have a you know he didn't have a Facebook account. So this is just face-to-face word, verbal communication. Isn't it? No, I believe these principles have application and, and speak to the, all of our communication, uh, whether that be digital or in the real world. And we've got to be careful because we're you know these Facebook and social media mediums are creating a look-at-me generation where we, we want everybody to look at us. Uh, and we, you know, certainly if you're a millennial, which I am not, I'm disappointed <laughs> no. about that. No, no, sorry. <laughs> but I'm neither am I middle-aged, so I'm glad about that. So <laughs> I'm not going to you, Richard, for that. No, we can be friends in that. And I can tease you with my non-corrupting you know, we, we've turned looking at, our, getting people to look at us, or look, having this kind of look at me attitude into a science and an art. Um, and it's not that social networks are evil, are they? They're not, they're not um, you know, if you, you've got to abstain from Twitter, otherwise Jesus is condemning you to hell. No, you know, but as Christians, we've got to just be discerning about all of our communication, all of the things that we say. And we've got to apply this verse, and what the Bible says to our online life as well. So just a, a word of wisdom, you know. Actually, the one good thing about social media is, which which is in some ways more helpful than what we have when we communicate face-to-face, is at least there's a submit button that you, have to, that you have to choose to hit before it goes out into the wider world. We don't have a submit button on our voices and our tongues. So, you know, there's, God has given us, even in the, the digital world, a means of grace to limit us, to help us to stop and think before we go with our words. And that's so we should just think about that before we post everything. Is this what I'm just about to say in keeping with Ephesians 4:29? Take the word test. Um, take the word test. <clears throat> now, for our words to be filled with grace and truth. Our hearts need to be filled with grace and truth. Through the Gospels, uh, to Mark 7, I think Luke 6 as well, Jesus is very clear that what comes out of our mouths is the overflow of our hearts. The overflow of our hearts. What comes out of our mouths is the overflow of our hearts. So the only way that we can uh, grow in using words that are redemptive and God-honoring and life-giving uh, is to be changed from the inside out. 
We need, we've been given new hearts, but we need them to constantly be renewed and constantly be filled with the Spirit um, and be submitted to Jesus and submitted to His Word. Uh, and we need to be saturating ourselves in His Word so that He speaks to us and to our hearts so that when we speak, that is the primary and dominant um, power that accompanies our words, if you like. So we need to saturate ourselves in God's Word so that our speech might, as, as God's word comes into our hearts, and you can hear about how it comes into our hearts by going next door to Matt's seminar on um, private worship. As we take God's word and it changes our hearts, as we saturate ourselves in God's word and the gospel, it should change us on the inside, but then out of the overflow of our changed heart and our fed heart and our scripture-saturated heart and our Holy Spirit-empowered heart, our words can change. So we want to just... You can't just do this in isolation. It's not enough to have willpower to speak differently. We need to make sure that what we're putting in uh, is healthy and uh, good for us because that will help change what comes out. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Good stuff in, hopefully over time, increasingly more good stuff going out. So we just need to be aware of that as well. But actually, it's not a tongue problem first and foremost. It's a heart problem. We need Jesus to work on our hearts. Mm -hmm. uh, the good news is that he's committed to that. He's, he, the good news is he is committed to that. We have the power now to say no to sin, to say no to ungodliness, and we have the power to say yes to righteousness. Paul writes to Titus, is it Titus 2? You know, uh, salvation has appeared, or, or the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to men. Now, we have the power to say no to unholiness, no to unrighteousness, and, it has to, and we've got, we're being taught righteousness and holiness. We are able to pursue those things. So we, we want to recognize that our speech is not just changing our behavioral patterns, but getting at our hearts, the heart of so that God's word is changing us from the inside out. Um, so we want to put off corrupting words, rot words, poisonous words, but then we want to put on words... Words that must be put on. So this is the, the, the second half of the verse. Words that must be put on. Again, Paul commands, not only that there are words to be put off, but, that one of those great big, but gospel words, but let there, let there be words, only such words as are good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So I thought it would just be helpful to maybe unpack those three things. Um, words that build up, words that fit the occasion, words that give grace. So uh, I call these edifying words, appropriate words, and purposeful words. So Paul says the kind of speech that is supposed to characterize Christians is firstly words that edify. Words that edify. This doesn't mean we just speak politely to one another. It doesn't just mean we speak nice words. It doesn't just mean that we're socially, you know, uh, conversant. Uh, it doesn't mean that we just we exercise flattery. It doesn't mean that we are superficial or man-exalting. That's not what edifying means. Uh, what Paul is getting at when he speaks, when he says speak edifying words, he's talking about speaking words that build people up into Jesus, that build people's faith in Jesus, that help them understand the truth of God more deeply. These are the kind of things that edification implies it's a that it's words that 
reveal the character and the nature and the attributes and the activity of God, or words that tell us the truth about God that then help us to live in light of that truth. Uh, they're they're gospel-centered words. They're cross-centered words. They're they're words that are kind of rooted in and derived from Scripture. They're words that we speak that will um, cause that could be used by God to cause people to grow. That, that they'd be edified. That they would um, they would be built up. Um, you know, edification is the same word, isn't it, that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. When he's talking about spiritual gifts, we, we prophesy, we come alongside one another so that they might, they might be edification and encouragement and consolation, comfort. And edification is that word that, that means to, to build up, to, to lift people up to Jesus, to take them up to God. Words that will increase their faith, to help them to see where God is at work. Because so often the people that we talk to, especially if you're in a worship team or, or you know, in a small group situation in your church, you know, people are mostly aware of the sin in their hearts, where they failed, where they didn't meet the standard, how they've let God down again, whatever it might be. Those kind of thoughts plague people, doubts, struggles with sin that they just can't get over. And so our responsibility and our privilege is to speak words to our friends, to our family, to those who are in our churches, reminding them of the grace of God, reminding them of their need of Jesus and how great the Savior Jesus is. That's what edifying words are. We have the privilege and the joy and the responsibility of bringing to other people's attention where God is at work in them. Or when they've sinned, how God is a forgiving God, how he's a gracious God, how he's a holy God who loves them, cares for them, and wants their, them to repent. And when they repent and they walk in the light, he's faithful to forgive their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. It's words that edify our souls. Uh, if you've been around in Sovereign Grace for a while, we kind of come, we, we turn this <coughs> looking for the evidences of grace in people's lives. Looking for the evidences of grace in people's lives. Now, sometimes it, you say, well, how do I, what, what do you mean by evidence of grace? What does that look like? And what are you supposed to look for? How do you share that with someone? How do you discern if God's at work? Well, those are big questions, and I don't have all the answers, but here's a few tips that I'm trying to grow in as I try to grow in speaking and find words. So if you start with your those closest to you, your wife, your children, your family, uh, and just begin to say, well, where are they? Where's God at work in their lives? Maybe start with the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Um, are they uh, loving, gentle, self control patient, faithful? Where could you just encourage that? Hey, you know, your joy, despite the trial that you're walking through now, is an evidence of God's grace at work in your life. You might not see that, but I do. And when we talk about evidences of grace, you know, sometimes it can be like, well, I, you know, you're just such a lovely person, you're such a nice guy. Now, we don't, we don't want to be flattering, we want to be speaking words that we come to people and we say, not, again, in the worship context, like, that was a great guitar solo. Wow, man, I was just blown away. Thank you so much for playing like that. Well, that's great, and that's nice, but that's not edifying to their soul. Mm. But to say, you know, you, you might say, thank you for the way that you played. 
and your heart to serve our church. Uh, and that's God's work in your life because you wouldn't want to serve this church if God hadn't given you a love and a heart for this church. So thank you so much for doing that. Or it might be, you know, uh, not just looking for, uh, again, when I'm speaking about evidence of grace, we're not looking like, well, you were a murderer and now you're just such a wonderful person. But hey, is there, is there small degrees of change? You know, hey, remember last week you said this and you were really downcast and you were struggling with that question about God's goodness towards you because of the situation that you're in. But this week I heard you testify that you're trusting God. God's at work. Just want to encourage you with that. Thank you for pressing into Him. Let's keep pressing in. Let's pray. So, it, you know, if we begin to look for where God is at work, we'll be surprised where we find Him. I think. And you could look at the, the fruits of the Spirit. You could start with the gifts of the Spirit. That you know. So even just you know creating a, a, a looking out on Sunday mornings. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for your. Thank you for greeting me with joy. Thanks for looking after my kids. Uh, you know, to the children's workers on a Sunday morning because you know. They're the people that get left out the most, you know? We just dump our kids and we run while they're screaming. <laughs> and then we go tentatively collect them. But what an what a encouragement it would be to say to the children's workers, thank you so much for sacrificing your opportunity in the meeting to look after my screaming kid. That means the world to me. I'm so grateful to God for you. you know, just little ways in which we can speak. Uh, and as we practice this privilege, you know, it's like anything, you know, as we practice looking for where God is at work, we'll begin to see him more and more, we'll begin to get better at it. And do you know what? The more specific our encouragement, the stronger our encouragement is. You know, the more specific we are, the stronger it's going to be, the more encouraging it's going to be. You know, if I just say, Greg, hey, Greg's a nice guy. He's a real, he's a nice guy. But if I get into Greg and I say, you know, I'm just, uh, in the conversations that I've had with Greg, I'm so impressed with his humility as he's leading his church and how he's faithfully serving in Horse Castle. Is that, I was going to call it Horn Castle, but that's somewhere else. As he's serving faithfully in Horse Castle, serving Jesus, you know, the more specifically we get. And if I knew him better, I'd be able to tell you more about him. So, you know, we know people well. So let's, let's look for where God is at work in their lives and how he's, uh, how he's working in them and, as, and we point it out not to bring glory to that person. We're saying God is doing this. He gets the glory, but you get edified. So that's, that's what I mean by edifying words. Secondly, appropriate words. Paul says, as fits the occasion. So our words must be appropriate to those that we're seeking to serve. So... Uh, we, we've got to study the people that are around us. We've got to study our music teams. We've got to study our churches. We've got to study our, uh, the people that we serve alongside. We've got to study our families. We've got to study our wives. We've got to study our children so that we can gain personal knowledge of them and where they're at so that we can actually speak appropriate words to that person. Uh, Proverbs 18.13 says, if, if one gives an answer before he hears, that's to his folly and his shame. If we give an answer before we hear, if we haven't done our homework, if we're, if we're just slow to listen and quick to speak, actually that's fine to our shame because we need to speak appropriate words. Um, and one of the big categories of appropriate words is speaking words that are actually intended for the good of the other person rather than words that 
will leave them impressed with me. So, you know, so I want to speak words that are intended for the good of their soul rather than words that somehow kind of come back to reflect me in a better light. We don't want to go impressing others. We want to make sure that we're speaking for their benefit, for their building up appropriately as fits the occasion. Uh, and scripture must inform our use of appropriate words. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle. So, call out the lazy people. You know that? Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everybody. So, we've got to fit our words to who we're speaking to. We've got to fit our words to the situation that that person is in. So Paul doesn't say, he, he says, admonish the idle, call out the lazy people, get them, you know, challenge them on their sin. But he doesn't say, admonish the faint-hearted, because that would break them, perhaps. So he says, get alongside the faint-hearted and encourage them. Help the weak. Don't rebuke them. Don't tell them to knock their ideas up and pull their socks up and just be stronger. That's not going to help them, is it? We, and we've got to exercise patience with all. So we've got to, we, we've got to look at these people that we're, that we're surrounded by and say, well, what can I say that would strengthen them? What are, they, what are they faced with right now in their situation? And so you would speak different words to a couple in your church who are having a miscarriage as you would to a guy who's, you know, um, can't get out of bed at You know, we, we've got to think about who is before us. Do they need exhortation and edification? Do they need to be challenged, not by me, but by God's word that I bring to them? And you can only do that if you've got so much relational strength to drive the, the truck of correct, correction over. So throw that category out. Do they need warning? Do they need counsel? Do they need comfort? Do they need a gospel reminder? Do they need to hear forgiveness from me? Do they just need to have a shoulder to cry on? And I don't need to say anything right now. I just need to weep with them. Right now. Appropriate words is not just trying to fix the situation, make it better. Sometimes it's just being a shoulder to cry on. Initially, you know, so um, situations arise. You know, my, my mom died in 2010. She had breast cancer away um, in the hospital and the temptation in those moments, I've got two younger brothers my dad was there, the, the temptation is to go because my brother rang and said I think mum's going to die so can you come and she was in Cardiff, we were living in Bristol, it was an hour's journey and so I jumped in the car and the temptation is to go and to be ready to console, ready to comfort, ready to tell them that God is sovereign and that everything's going to be, you know he's got us in his hands and um, he's, a, he's, he's controlling the situations and you know Mum was a believer, and so we don't have anything to fear. She's with Jesus now. Uh, and all of those things are right and true and good and glorious and needed to be heard. But when you get there, you just hug. And you don't necessarily have to say anything, because those things can come later. Sometimes it's just the, the appropriateness of the situation. It's just weeping with those who weep or rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's not necessarily feeling like, I've got to fix this, I've got to get this right, I've got to say some things because I'm a Christian. So I better say something Christian. And actually we end up doing what the Apostle Peter used to do a lot. He'd open his mouth and just put his foot in. 
we want to be spared from Peteritis. Sometimes it's not just what the person needs, sometimes it's just the appropriate time. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Who is before me? What are their present circumstances? What's my relationship with these people? What's my history with them? You know, I speak very differently to those who I've known for 15 years and those I've known for 15 days. Um, is it the right, is it appropriate for me to, to say this? You know, it might be that, um, you know, I, I want to encourage, so Kate here on the second row, she's in my church, and I might want to encourage her or something, but actually it, it may not be appropriate for me just to draw Kate aside one-to-one for a quiet, intimate word in her ear without her husband Tim there. And so just got to think through that as well. I want to be appropriate in the way that I communicate to, uh, to people. So um, just, that requires wisdom and discernment. Um, we're going to make mistakes. Some of it's trial and error as well. Um, but one of the wonderful things about God's word is he, he says this in James chapter 1, if anybody lacks wisdom, then ask God who gives wisdom. And we, can, we can ask God for wisdom to grow in this area. Um, so, appropriate words. Proverbs 15.23 finishes this and draw this point to an end. It says, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is word in season, how good it is. So, just, there's some categories there for us to think about. And then finally, Paul says uh, purposeful words. The end of verse 29, words that give grace to those who hear. Words that give grace to those who hear. So that there, I think he's trying to help us to see that there should, <coughs> let there be a biblical purpose to what we're saying. Let there be uh, let there be um, the opportunity in every conversation for grace to abound, for grace to come. Everybody needs to hear grace. <coughs> Whether we've been a Christian for 50 years or 15 years, we need grace because we so easily forget. You know, what is, you know this is obvious. You know, we're, when Paul, Paul writes the New Testament letters that he wrote, the 13 epistles, churches and to individuals, most of the time, almost in it, well, in every single letter, there's a reminder of the gospel. He's writing to these people; they need to, to hear the gospel again to be reminded of grace. But they're Christians, but he's still reminding them because they forget because the world is trying to squeeze us and mold us to its image and conform us to its likeness, and we need to hear the gospel. We we can be pressed in from every side. We can suffer. We can experience downcastness of our souls. We can. You know, we can lose sight of uh, of life sometimes. And, and we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of what Jesus has done because life, situations of life just so overwhelm us sometimes. We need to just speak grace to one another. We need to remind one another of the grace of God at work. So sometimes that might be someone is condemned by a particular incidence of sin. And we need to speak words of justifying, to remind them of justifying grace. I had this situation just not more than an hour ago. Someone was just confessing their sin to me and saying, talking about the struggles and invited me to pray for them. And I was able just to pray for them and remind them of thanks for humbling yourself. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. As you humbled yourself, as you brought this out into the light, what does first John 1 say? It says, we confess our sins, he's faith and just Cleanse us from, forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, so that we might walk in fellowship together. 
And as you've done that, now we can pray with confidence, can't we, Dad? Although we've sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and he demands justice, we don't have to offer that justice to him. He's, Christ has just has paid the penalty for us, so we can be justified by him, declared righteous, so we can go from here, having prayed and confessed our sin, experiencing God's forgiveness, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can speak words of justifying grace, or we can speak words for people who are struggling with sin that, that uh, speak sanctifying grace to them, that God is at work in you. He can change you. He has the power to help you. If it's a situation of trial or suffering, it's words of comforting grace. Or if it's weariness that we're struggling with, and just, you know, a downcast soul, that God, it can be this, this reviving grace through God's word. So through every conversation, however brief, Paul wants to encourage us to, to seek to give grace to those who hear. And actually, I think one of the one of the intrinsic parts of understanding this verse, or I'm not sure if that's the right way of saying it, but one of the ways I think that I understand this verse is that as we speak edifying words and appropriate words, they're actually gracious words. You know, as we do the first two, the third one actually flows without too much effort. If we're committed to edifying and appropriate words, they will actually be gracious words. So we should choose to, in all of this, I think it's, it's Paul's telling us to speak redemptively. Speak redemptively. Um, that our words become a means of God's grace. That people encounter us and they encounter Jesus through our words. That as they come to us, we have, we're able to speak words that are redemptive. Now, that, when I say speak redemptively, I'm not just saying we speak, that's different from evangelistically. You know, we speak evangelistically to unbelievers, calling them to Jesus to repent. When we're speaking redemptively, evangelistically certainly fits under that category, but redemptively is a reminder of all that God has done, that we are um, coming to them to point them to Jesus, to speak Jesus to them. And the way that we speak to them, I mean, again, there's so many other things that can be drawn into this, like, you know, just the, the golden rule, you know, that Jesus holds forward, you know. Um, do treat others the way that we want to be treated. You know, and, and as we love God, we want to love others. You know, speak in ways that, um, that we would want to be spoken to if we were suffering, or if we were struggling, or if we were in trial, or if we, we were weary. So that grace might come to those who hear. And as we seek to put off uh, rock words, and as we seek to put on gracious words, um, it's a powerful, powerful tool in the hands of God to build this church up and build us together. So some just some thoughts and applications on this, just um, a few few thoughts, just generally. Um, Take this and seek to apply it immediately. I'm not, so I'm expecting a big long line and encouraging words afterwards. <laughs> no. No, but, you know, what an opportunity to go and say to Bob and Devon and Jared and Rick, thank you. And be specific, not just thanks for coming from America. They'll be blessed by that, but thanks for preaching that message or saying that or this affected me. And encourage them. Or take it home tomorrow and opportunities in your church tomorrow as, 
as you join with other band members, or as you're served by band members, or as we said, as the children's ministry workers serve us, or as the person on the door greets us. What an opportunity for us to go and put this into practice straight away by encouraging them, by strengthening them, by edifying them. Maybe it's something you need to go home and say to your spouse, or to your children, or to your parent, or to a friend of yours, or to someone in your small group. But let's, let's be proactive about how we can put this into practice um, to speak edifying and appropriate personal words. Let me pray for us and then we'll bat this around as long as we want. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you do not leave us to ourselves to make sense of how we're supposed to live this life in this world. But thank you that you've saved us and transformed us through the power of the gospel and then instructed us and you teach us and you equip us so that we might live as your people in your world according to your ways. Lord, we pray that you'd help each one of us in this particular area. Our, our speech, as we said, is such a fundamental part of who we are. And we need your help to be able to shape it and use it and speak in a way that brings glory to you. But thank you that you can help us. Thank you that you will help us. Thank you that your spirit abounds to help us. So Lord, I pray for everybody here. I pray for all of us that we would take this gospel obligation that you call us to and we would seek to apply it through the power of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, so that the pe people who meet us, people that we interact with, people that we speak to, in whatever walk of life, in whatever situation, in whatever circumstance, might hear grace from us and receive grace from you through us, so that they might be built up and edified and encouraged and strengthened in their walk with you, so that you might be Okay. Uh, I don't profess to have any answers to many questions, but if anybody's got some questions, I will try and answer. Chris, um, just going back to you on the edifying words thing. Um, uh, when we read in scripture of this pushing off of the children, like in here or in Colossians mm -hmm. and elsewhere, um, the work of sanctification, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you can read it, and I've generally been taught it that um, that they say it happens over time. Uh, we we kind of are surprised when it doesn't happen instantly, mm -hmm. um, and I can't I can't think of many uh, times when I see the whole marginal gains thing. God rejoices the marginal gains, mm -hmm. the whole. Um, where would you where would you go to in scripture for that, or where would you go to to try and? So I, I know times when someone's tried to encourage me, saying, um, uh, "Oh, you know, you've made progress in this," and I'm like, "Yes, but I'm not perfect yet." Mm -hmm. um, so I don't take that encouraging words. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, where, where do you go to try and show someone? That God does rejoice in the marginal gains. 
I, I think uh, it's a great question, which you always have to say. After <laughs> 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 the question is asked, just, you know. It's yeah, it's a great question. So, yeah, so I don't want to neglect to encourage you with your great question. Uh, <laughs> see what I do there. Um, I, I think the clearest place to go in terms of just being able to point people to the fact that Jesus changes us little by little is, is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Um, instead of reading it from memory, you're butchering it when you read it instead. Um, where he talks about how you know the Spirit um, has worked in us, and this is 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with an unveiled face have had the privilege of beholding the glory of God. And now... As we behold him, God is transforming us to be like him. And he says, we're transforming into the same image that we behold from one degree of glory to another. And so I think I said this seminar the other day about cultivating um, gospel culture. Yeah. You know, it's, it, God works in us, and it's usually it's baby steps, it's usually it's degrees. We want leaps and bounds, and so we, we kind of despise them. Small beginnings, yeah. and we say, oh, you know, yeah, it's not, you know, I haven't changed as much as I'd like. Well, actually, you know, one degree, it's one degree at a time. It's little baby steps, it's bigger steps. And we shouldn't despise you know, small incremental change over time, which actually means a year from now, mm -hmm. it's going to be vastly different, hopefully, by the grace of God. You know what I mean? So I think it's just those kind of things. It's, it's seeing that, again, um, Psalm 126, which I referenced at the end of Jared's message. In Psalm 126, you get um, the psalmist is praying for revival in his life and in his heart, and he's praying for God's work. And he prays that, that again, I mean, not butcher it, but read it. Uh, Psalm 126 says, um, he's, he's, remember, he's reminiscing on how the Lord had been gracious to him in the past. And then he prays in verse 4 of Psalm 126, Restore our fortunes, O God, revive us. And then he, his prayer is, Revive us, make us alive, give us what we experienced before, like streams in the Negev. Now, if you understand what that means, it's, you know, in the, in the Middle East it was a desert, there wasn't a lot of rain, it was dry and barren, and yet at certain points in the, in the year, God sent, well, rains came and flash floods came through the Negev. And, completely turned the barren wilderness into, for a day or two, luscious flower beds of life. And sometimes God does that. He, he comes and he restores our hearts and changes us like streams in the Negev. Boom! But usually, if you follow on in verse 5 and 6, those who sow in tears will reap with will reap joy. And yes, actually God often, he can work streams in the day, yeah, boom, change you. And actually sometimes it's just the faithfulness of you sow, you wait, and you reap. And it's sometimes it's little by little. Farmers don't throw stones. See, my granddad was a farmer. I used to watch him, you know, we'd go, I don't know whenever it was, but this is going to show my <laughs> complete inability to understand agriculture. But we would go one period of the year to visit my and he would be ploughing his farms and sowing his seed. And we would do that with him. We'd watch him drive in the back of the trailer or whatever and see him cast his seed into the field. We'd go out and 
do the same the next day. But we never took us back to the, the field from the previous day with a combine harvester. We'd have to go back four or five months later for the harvest. And so I think sometimes, you know, it's got often works just, you know, through seasons over time. And that's no less spectacular or miraculous because God is working in us, you know. We too often want the negative experience, especially in our modern world of convenience and immediacy and technology that, you know, you know, when I grew up, we were trying to get on the internet, it was dial-up, right? That's how old I am. You don't even know what dial-up is, do you? You, your granddad told you about it, right? <laughs> <laughs> dial-up, you said plug your computer into the phone line, and then it would dial, and then it would go, and if someone picked up the phone, unknowing that you were on, your entire computer would get disconnected. And by the time you wait 20 minutes for it to connect, you know, he then bring up this website which looked like you know a blind dog had made it, you know, it was that bad. But we were like, wow, this is amazing. I can see websites from the other side of the world. And now we've got Wi-Fi. I take my kids on holiday. They say, Dad, it's gonna be Wi-Fi. I said, no. Oh. And they're like, we don't want to go. <laughs> How are we gonna manage it? You know, because we live in a world where we just want everything now, and yet God. Can be that, and graciously does that sometimes, but more often than not, it works through the principles of seed and harvest and little degree after little degree. We shouldn't despise those things. You know? uh, and actually, what we need, because God usually works that way, is for someone to tell us it's how we work little by little because we miss it. Yeah, so I hope that helps you. Yeah, that's really no, 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 just that part. Can I say that's helpful? Is that? Yeah, hopefully. God, it's God's word, so yes, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. When is it appropriate to knock down? That's the wrong phrase, the opposite build up. Because sometimes we, we would, when we're dealing with sin, when we're dealing with, or even if it's not sin, like wisdom, or we're giving feedback, always, you know, we want the long term is we want to see growth and change and godliness. Um, but in the short term, that person might not hear it as encouragement. No, sure. Um, I mean, when, when is it appropriate to? How, how do you fit this, I guess, with that kind of scenario? We all give feedback. We do sin or discipline or yeah. But, yeah. Uh, <coughs> it's, a, it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I'll I, I start with what I'm about to say, then leave some other thoughts if I can. But I think as well when we think about grace and speaking words of grace we can always we can often think that that just means some kind of positive nature of grace some comfortable nature of grace where grace um, uh, you know like say yeah it's grace always just builds up but actually you know if grace is receiving what we don't deserve then I think it can be it can be gracious to say to someone, yeah, do you know what? You don't deserve this right now. Not that you would say it, but you know, they're in sin, they're lost, and actually what I'm doing is I'm you could you know, God would be right to just completely leave you to yourself. Um, but grace is actually coming alongside and saying, You don't deserve this. Not that you would say it like that, but 
I'm going to speak to you because I want you to receive what you don't deserve. You know, I want you to, to, to hear God's grace, which is actually sometimes grace is, is in the form of a warning. Sometimes grace is in the form of a rebuke. Sometimes grace is in the form of a, of a word spoken in season that brings the person up at the start. Sometimes grace is uncomfortable, I guess, is what we're, we're getting at. You know? and we've got to, as Christians, we shouldn't always just think that grace is somehow comforting and consoling. And sometimes the most gracious thing we can do to someone is to warn them. You know, you see that all the way through. God's grace towards the Old Testament Israel was often seen in warnings to them. You know, don't do this. And give yourself to this. If this, you know, if you keep capitulating into the cycle of idolatry and turning away from God, what am I going to do? I'm going to vomit you out of the land. <coughs> That's actually God's gracious warning to them. And so sometimes I, I think we shouldn't think that grace just masquerades as niceness. Sometimes grace is hard. I think I, I heard someone say once, I can't remember who it was, you know, sometimes grace in the hard work soft hearts. Mm. I think that's very helpful. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Hey. Um any thoughts on receiving encouragement? Yeah. Mm -hmm. encouragement. I think it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Is God's working is not me. You know, so, thank you. Yeah. 
mean, yes, what's your question? Yeah. Um, probably just right off from that. Out of all the things that people say to you as a pastor, mm -hmm. what are some of the things you find most encouraging, or most encourages you? Great. Thank you, that's a good question. Sometimes the temptation can be to, to think that um, this particular command 
can't do all Christians. And so we, we don't want to neglect it and think that that's for someone else and not for me. And you know, God's word is applicable to all of us. Um, so I would want to encourage those who are more introverted or, or feel like they don't have great communication skills to actually say, you know, it, it's not about the level of skill or you know, communication is not. Some people are more gifted at it than others, but all of us communicate in various ways to various people. Um, and actually, um, if we really do want to love the other person, we really do have kind of like um, a heart for others and we want to do the heart prefer others, we'll do and serve. You know, if we really want to serve others, we want it will require sacrifice of us and cost and put us in places that are uncomfortable and um, challenge our idolatry, uh, challenge our sinful hearts, challenge it, you know, um, get us out of our comfort zone. And I think that that's just, you know, it's a good thing. And if we're tempted to retreat, I think we should look at our own hearts and say, is this actually, am I loving the other, the other person or am I actually retreating because I'm self-protecting and don't want to put myself out there, I have a fear of man that I, I'm quite happy to submit to, I don't know, you know, so I think it's, I think it's getting at our hearts again of why God calls me to this, what's going on in my heart when I don't do this. And then saying, Lord, well, help me to love as, as you love. You said, you know, you stepped out of the prison, you left heaven, you humbled yourself unto death on the cross. For me, I can encourage that person. And, and sometimes it might be, you know, not great at communicating. It could be a text message. It could be a, a written note. It could be an email. It doesn't always have to just be verbal communication. Um, but I think God wants us to grow. All of us to grow in this area. Um, and if we're reluctant, then I think we need to. Like I said, it's not just a matter of willpower. It's doing it to address our hearts. What, what's going on in there? That means that I wouldn't speak like this. Or that I would withdraw. Is there something I need to address further back, a few steps back, that will help me then to obey? You know, so does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've got it's uh, it's quarter past three. I told the others to finish at quarter past three, so we can have like fifteen minutes to have another cup of coffee, to use the toilet, and then we're going to be starting the final session at three thirty, so we can get home early. So um, let me just pray for us, and then if you've got any other questions, you can grab me on the phone. Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that there is truth in it for how we speak. Lord, please help us to speak our 20,000 words or our 7,000 words with grace so that you might be glorified and our brothers and sisters might be built up and encouraged. For your glory we pray. Amen.